0: Hi, Chris Valatin here. Welcome to my podcast, where I hope to inspire you to walk in your royal identity in Christ and experience God's goodness in every area of your life. I hope you enjoy this message today. And if you're looking for more resources, check out chrisvalatin.com. I want to talk about becoming an apostolic people. And uh, I think you'll see real quickly how it co- uh, connects with the whole prophetic movement. But um, I, I'd like to give you my definition of apostles. And uh, this is. Um, really uh, well researched in the in the heavy rain book. If you're interested in, in cultural transformation at all, um, at least Bethel style, that that book is kind of full of this, this kind of theology. So I'm gonna this is gonna be a, uh, an overview. I have just about 50, 60 minutes uh, overview. So, um, but I felt that I was supposed to do this uh, this message this this afternoon um, when Jesus walked the earth. Um, They were living under Roman rule. The Jews were living under Roman rule. And it's interesting what happened when when Jesus took his his disciples, the word disciple means learner, and he promoted them from learners to leaders. Uh, It's interesting what he named them, because obviously he could have have named them patriarchs. There was 12 patriarchs in the Old Testament. Obviously there there was 12 apostles. He could have named them prophets. There was a whole school of prophets that began with Eli, the prophet, and, and at least went to, uh, all the way through Elisha. Um, he, he, could have, he could have called them priests. There was the whole Le- Levitical priestly order. But he chose this word, apostle. And um, it's, uh, it's interesting, this, the origin of this word and its definition, I think, is really profound. Now, first of all, people ask the question, why were there no apostles in the Old Testament? Well, one of the reasons why there was no apostles in the Old Testament is because the word wasn't invented. It, was, it wasn't invented until uh, uh, right before uh, the, the book of Matthew, actually, uh, before Matthew, the book of Matthew was written, about 300 years before Christ. And um, the, the Greeks invented the word apostle. It very simply means to be sent. But it actually, in its definition, means to be sent from a place to another place, to reproduce in the place you're sent to what you're sent from, until the place you're sent to looks like the place you're sent from. In real simple terms, we call it cultural transformation. So the Romans were a very aggressive nation. They were a little bit like Hitler in that they had this vision of kind of romanizing the world, like taking over the world. And so the Romans started conquering nations. And as they conquered nations, let's say they conquered a city, then they conquer another city, then they conquer another city. And when they would go back to the first city they conquered, as a for example, those cities that they conquered were back to their old ways. And the Romans said, why are we conquering, but we're not culturizing? You know, when you're in Rome, you do as the Romans do. That adage came out of that whole idea that Romans wanted to conquer, but they also wanted to culturize. So they said, why are we conquering nations, cities, nations, people, but we are not culturizing? So they picked up this Greek idea, this Greek philosophy of apostles. They took some of their main generals, and they renamed their generals apostles. Not all of them, some of them. And then they sent their generals out with military, with their armies, as they always had done. But with the military went philosophers and teachers and politicians and musicians and artists. And you get the idea. So that they would conquer and then culturize. Conquer and culturize. Until the cities they conquered, the nations they conquered, look like Roman nations. Jesus, of course, as I just mentioned... The Jews are being ruled by the Romans at the time. So Jesus takes this very secular word. This was not uh, a word used in the Bible anywhere. It wasn't a, a word used in the Old Testament, in Hebrew anywhere. The, even the concept wasn't used in the Old Testament. He takes this very secular word, uh, is equal to our word like CEO or you, you know uh, CFO. He takes the very secular word and he says to his disciples, you... Are my apostles. You are my apostles. You know how those Romans are always trying to get us to act like Rome? You are my apostles. And then he gave them an apostolic prayer, the only prayer we were ever instructed to pray, at least that only model prayer, Jesus ever gave us. I'm sure Jesus prayed lots of other prayers besides this prayer, But when the disciples said, teach us to pray, he said, pray like this. Our Father, by the way, don't you love that he didn't say, pray our God. He said, pray our Father. Why? Because I was born into a family. Our Father, who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. What's the rest of the prayer? Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done where do you live? You live on earth and you live in heaven. You were raised up and seated in heavenly places with Christ. How many know that you're the first creature that we know of, at least that the Bible talks about, that, you, that, that lives dual dimensionally? You live on earth and you live in heaven simultaneously. I was meeting with some uh, congressmen not too long ago, and um, they, were, they, were, um, they happened to be Republicans, and it's a Democratic Congress right now Dem- in, our, in our nation. And so they were very uh, concerned about the fact that they felt powerless for very obvious reasons. The Democrats are right now ruling Congress as far as the majorities. And so they were kind of discouraged. And as we were having dinner, um, and they were kind of like just sharing their discouragement, mostly with each other. There was like six, six of them or so. And they were talking about how powerless... And how, and how much of a waste of time it felt to be in Congress when they didn't have votes, they didn't have the majority of votes to actually pass any amendments. And some of them had been eight terms, ten terms in Congress. And as they went around and, and talked about how powerless they were, I, I, I thought, you know, the Lord give me a word for them before we got in there, and I, it was really stirring in me. And so it, finally, the, the, one of the uh, congressmen said, hey, we invited Chris here, and my friend was with me. He said, why don't we, why don't we ask them what they think? So I, I, so he said, Chris, do you have something to say? And I said, yeah, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. <laughs> and I went around the room, and I named all six of them, you're all wrong. And they said, well, what do you mean by that? I said, well, you think you're congressmen, but God says you're cultural architects. And the reason why you think that you're powerless is because you think the Democrats are your problem. And you haven't, you don't, you haven't even looked around and realized that majorities don't rule. 3% of, of the population right now, the homosexual community, the gay community, has dictated the entire world's agenda. And so if that doesn't tell you that majorities don't rule, I don't know what does. And secondly, you'd, you, know, you'd have, you haven't understood that God puts you in a heavenly seat and your reaction tells me that you have no vision, and you're responding to feeling powerless instead of instead of you're reacting to feeling powerless instead of responding to your heavenly seat in the kingdom. Yes. And and somebody says, well, what's the heaven my heavenly seat in the kingdom? I said, well, there's three heavens, and and one of them next to me goes, oh, there's three of them. I'm like, uh huh. God created the heaven and the earth. That's the first heaven. That's the heaven you see, the heaven we all live in, right? It's the first heaven. And then Ephesians 6 says, there's principalities and powers, and it names four different types of principalities that are in heavenly places. Our struggle's not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, principalities and powers, and names four of them, in heavenly places. There are no principalities in God's heaven. God kicked them out. And then the, the Apostle Paul said, I knew a man who went to the third heaven. Now we know that by, by the context that he was actually talking about himself. And he said, I saw that he saw things. He said, I knew a man who went to the third heaven and, and he saw things that were inexpressible. And so they're listening. I said, so there are three heavens and you live in the first heaven and you rule from the third heaven because you were seated in heavenly places with Christ. And the person next to me said, does it say that in the Bible? I said, yes, it does. And so I actually literally, I had on my phone, and I, I got my Bible program out, and I read them, Ephesians 1, that you have been seated with Christ in heavenly places far above all principalities and powers and every name that's ever been named. Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 1, and he put everything under your feet. I said, it's a metaphor for the principalities and powers. The evil forces are under your feet, meaning you have power over them as long as you sit in your heavenly seat. But they have power over you if you only sit in your earthly seat. So I said, you can live from earth towards heaven, or you can live from heaven towards earth. If you live from earth towards heaven, you're always living in reaction to what has already happened. You're always praying about what's already happened. You're like, and I'm not saying you shouldn't pray about what's already happened, but I'm saying it leaves you in a reactionary place because you're praying for healing instead of prophesying a whole culture. So I said, if you live from heaven towards earth, Revelation chapter four, Jesus told the apostle John, come up here, come up here. What's Jesus doing? He's inviting him to his heavenly seat. Come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. If you, if you lead from heaven towards earth, then your prayers become prophecies and your words become worlds. Your prayers become prophecies and your, become, your words become worlds. And not only that, but when you pray from earth towards heaven, you're praying to God. But when you're praying from heaven towards earth, you're praying with God. How many know we are called to partner with God? And not only that, do you know where you're seated in heavenly places? Ephesians two six, by the way. Hello, are you all right? It's, it's, it's way after lunch by now. Even the Mexicans are waking up. Right? Where's my Mexican friends? Oh, I was gonna, I was hoping they weren't like taking a nap or something. Oh, they're still taking a nap. Uh, What I'm getting at is, is that, do you know where you're seated? Someone tell me. In Christ, far above all principalities and powers, do you know what throne you're sitting on? Someone tell me. You are not seated on the throne of Christ, you're seated on the throne of David. You know why? Because Jesus is sitting, not on his throne, but on the throne of David, which God prophesied would be forever and forever. Are you with me? Because how many know David was prophesied that he would lead long after he died, and Jesus is ruling from Christ. Thro- I'm sorry, from the throne of David, and you sit with him on his heavenly throne. Oh boy, it got really quiet in here. Is that in the Bible? It is somewhere. I think it's Revelation chapter twenty. Um, so. I want to talk about this idea of, first of all, two things. What does it mean to be apostolic? And what does it mean to be a prophetic people in an apostolic culture? Why don't you turn to Ezekiel chapter 37? This is a story of Ezekiel entering a former battlefield in which men had died and it must have been an old battlefield in the fact that there was only dry bones. And when Ezekiel enters the battlefield, God asked the prophet a ridiculous question. Can these bones live? I'd like to read you just something I, I wrote uh, for this prophetic people. When Ezekiel entered the valley of the dry bones, the outlook was bleak. Death hung over the battlefield like a thick, dark cloud. Then suddenly God rocked Ezekiel's world. He asked the prophet a ridiculous question. Can these bones live? The great prophet staggered to comprehend the possible outcome of God's inquiry. Finally, he gathered himself and answered, You know, Lord. The rest of the story is, uh, the, the rest is history. A mighty army emerged from the valley of dry bones as Ezekiel prophesied life into the dusty rubble. Once again, the prophetic people stand in the valley of the shadow of death. And once again, God is asking the same question: Can these bones live? The history, the history of the nations, hangs in the balances as we ponder, as um, as we ponder the answer to this profound question: Will we inspire mass funerals of despair, or will we equip a mighty army of light bearers? The world waits in hopeful anticipation as the prophetic people of God stand in the valley of decision. May God commission us to once again rock the nations as we gather to seek the king. And may he equip us to see a mighty army rise from the dry bones of global despair. And may we shine the light of hope into a desperate and dying world. I want you to notice that God didn't ask Ezekiel to prophesy about the bones. He told Ezekiel to prophesy to the bones. See, um, prophecy is foretelling... I'm telling you the future. But as I shared with you in our session that we did when we, right before we prophesied to much people, that the most powerful part of prophecy in my mind is not foretelling. The most powerful part of prophecy is foretelling. The ability to procreate with God. You know when Adam named the animals? Well, first of all, Adam did not name the animals. Adam named the living creatures. And the Bible says, and whatever Adam named them, that was their name. Interesting uh, set of verses in the Hebrew. In other words, God was was forming and fashioning creatures. You'll notice that um, when God created Adam, he created him from dirt. And when he created the animals, he created them from the same substance, dirt. He breathed into Adam his soul. God breathed his own soul into Adam. He did not breathe into the animals. It's interesting. God created for five days by prophesying, let there be light. Let there be an expanse in the heaven. And for five days, God creates by speaking. But on the sixth day, God was silent. I want to say just something here. Sometimes God does his best work when he's not talking. God formed Adam, he formed Adam on the sixth day and breathed into his nostrils. And then he began to form the animals out of dirt. Because God was silent, in other words, God did not speak the animals into existence, it left room for Adam to co create with God. So when Adam, when God, God was fashioning creatures and Adam was naming them. Um, I know that Adam didn't speak English, of course, and we don't have any idea how Adam actually did communicate, but if you will, when God created a creature, he brought it to Adam to see what Adam would name it. That's what the Bible says in the Hebrew. And when Adam would name the creature, as Adam named the creature, the creature in the Hebrew would take on the distinction of Adam's name, Uh, in other words, of Adam's naming, Uh, Let's pretend Adam could speak English. We know he couldn't. But he sees a creature and he suddenly goes, Lion! Lion! And when Adam says lion, that creature suddenly took on the courage of a lion and the character of the animal in which he prophesied. So God and Adam were co-creating. God was fashioning and forming and Adam was prophesying. He wasn't calling the animals spot, fifi, and trigger. Are you following me? He wasn't naming the animals like, oh, I think I'll call my dog, uh, you know, a fifi. He wasn't doing that. He was, the the Hebrew isn't talking about naming someone like you name them John. He's talking about that Adam was naming, he was co-creating with God. Are you with me? Part of the challenge we have as prophetic people, and I'm, I'm glad that, Uh, Lisa brought this up in a different different light. But part of the problem with, with being an anointed prophetic person is that death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And the more anointed you are, the more powerful you are in the negative and the positive. Sometimes we are talking our mohills into mountains and wondering why our valleys are so deep. Let me say that again. Sometimes we go to a prophetic conference and get anointed, we get appointed, we get gifted, we get called, and then we go home and we talk to our mohills until they become mountains. And then we wonder how deep the valley is. Like after that prophetic conference, everything around me is just deep. I'm just always in a valley. It's like, stop talking to the mohills. I like what Jesus said. He said, tell the mountain to be removed. The goal of prophetic ministry is to encourage, exhort, and comfort, not to make people's mohills mountains. We're not supposed to go to the valley of dry bones and raise monsters to life. It matters. Okay, why are you yelling? I don't know. It matters what you say. What you say, if you say to this mountain, be removed. But what if you say to this moat hill, grow? Some of us are talking ourselves to death. What do you do when you get afraid? Shut up. If you're really anointed when you're afraid, don't talk. Remember the, the Israelites walking around seven times around the, the, the Jericho, mount, uh, Jericho walls? And God said, "Don't talk." <gasps> Why? <laughs> because there's power in your words. Yes, and God said, "When I tell you shout and they couldn't talk for 7 days, I think that was a lot harder than the journey." Yeah. Especially because there was ladies there. <laughs> ladies use a lot more words than men. It's true. I said that when my wife and I were co-teaching last year, and she said, well, well on the mic, she said, do you know why we, we use more words? I said, no. She said, because we have something to say. It's oh. a really good point. Really good point. Women love details. How many guys have figured this out? I, I, my wife, I, I, now I've been married 43 years, I've been with her five years before that, so we've been together 48 years, and, and I'm only 52, so got, got married when, she was, when we were four. You ever notice that women communicate in a way that the punchline is always at the end? So we'll have to listen to all the detail, and the, the punchline is the reward for listening to the detail. How many guys, I'm teaching guys like how to understand this, like I'm just learning it like in the last few years, so it took me like 45 years to understand it. And my wife will be like, yeah, I went to the store today, and, and um, oh yeah, well first uh, I, I, I dropped off the grandkids, then I took the kids to the store, I had to get gas on the way there, And uh, I took my my truck, and it took me like an hour and a half to get there. I'm like, where is this story going? (laughs) Like, tell me. Tell me what the point is, and then then I can decide if I want to listen to the rest of the details. Anyway, it has nothing to do with prophecy. I just thought it's funny. what I was talking about. Propsy. The power of speech. Okay, I got it. I got it. I remember. Just had a senior moment there for a minute. Life and death is in the power of the tongue. When God anoints us, it's kind of important. It's kind of like having a sword or like having a scalpel or having a knife. It's like you can use it for good or you can use it for evil. And I, sometimes we make ourselves, we're, we're our own worst enemies. So, um, I believe that God's called us to co-reign with him. He's called us to co-reign with him. How many know that it's the uh, psalmist wrote, the heavens, the highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth belongs to the sons of men. Do you, you know why God had to die on a cross? Because how many know that God gave authority to the earth to men. You remember this? When Adam and Eve ate the fruit, lots of people teach, well, they disobeyed God. They did disobey God, but the most profound thing, the most profound negative thing they did wasn't disobeying God, it was obeying the devil. The devil said, eat the tree. God said, don't eat the tree. And when they they ate the tree, they didn't just disobey God. They obeyed the devil, and therefore, they changed masters. God put the earth under his authority, and he gave it to men. But men gave authority, the authority for the earth, to the devil. You remember in Luke chapter 4, the devil says to Jesus, If you bow down and worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world, for they have been what? Handed over to me. Who handed them over to him? Adam? Are you following me? So, the Son of God had to become the Son of Man so that sons of men could become sons of God. So, God had to become a man because God gave authority to men for the earth. So, God had to win back authority as a man. Are you with me? So, we get to co create with God because God gave authority of the earth to men. Now, Jesus said, in Matthew 28, it's been quoted two or three times, all authority has been given to me in heaven, which would have not been a revelation to the disciples he was talking to, and on earth. The on earth part would have been a a tremendous revelation to the audience that he was speaking to, because they would have believed that the earth belonged to the enemy. (laughs) And Jesus said, when he rose from the dead, he goes, I got back the keys. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, make disciples of all nations, teaching them everything I taught you. In other words, now that I have all authority, I give you authority. Now, how many understand that if I have all the pie, that means Ben has None. (laughs) Are you with me? Lots of people are running from a devil who has no authority. Okay, let's start over. I don't know how many times I've heard like, well, the devil's really after me this week. Listen, God did not put the devil on the earth so that he could be after you. He put the devil on the earth so you could be after him. The devil said, I want to be like God. Do you remember this? As Lucifer, he said, I want to be like God. I will rise to the heights of the heavens, and I will sit among the assembly of God. Where do you sit? Among the assembly of God. And God said, no, you won't. And he thrust him down the earth. And and the earth that he thrust him down to was just a rock floating through space like Mars. And then for six days, as we've just told you, that God takes uh, something that's, that is just a rock floating through space, empty, uh, um, I'm sorry, Genesis 1, says the earth was I'm not listening to you. Formless and void, that's, yeah, someone was trying to say it to me, just couldn't hear you. Formless and void, it means chaos, that the earth was formless and void, and the, the, the devil was put on a planet that was just A rock floating through space. I don't know. Is he there a billion years, a million years, one year, one week? We don't know. But he's floating through space on this rock, and all of a sudden God begins to create. I don't know about you, but maybe the devil's thinking, oh, maybe God relented. Because all of a sudden, earth is starting to look like heaven. Then on the sixth day, God says, let us make man in our image, and in our likeness. What did the devil want? He wanted to be like God. Why did God put the devil on the same planet he put you on? He could have put him on Mars. He could have put him on Jupiter. He could have put him in another universe, which would all be fine with me. He didn't put him on the earth to torment you. He put you on the earth to torment him. God said, before I throw you in the lake of fire, part of your punishment is, there will be billions of people who have what you want. They will be made in my image. And by the way, do you know, that there's five things God calls beautiful. No, I'm sorry. There are six times that God calls things beautiful. One time, Lucifer, Four time, five times, women. The only thing the Bible has ever called beautiful is Lucifer was the most beautiful creature in heaven. He's called beautiful. And then five times, the only other creature ever called beautiful is a woman by God. Ladies, you wonder why the devil hates you? You wonder why he doesn't want you to have power? You remember the curse over the devil? You remember the curse over the devil? The curse over the devil was that you're going to crawl on your ground and eat dust, and what's the rest of it? And I'm going to put hostility between the woman and you, and between your seed and her seed. And the Bible goes on to say, he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. In other words, the, the curse over the devil was, God said, I'm going to make the woman t- eternally hate you. And she'll teach her children to hate you. And her children will crush your head and he'll, they'll, they'll, they will stomp you so hard it'll bruise their heel. You know why the devil hates women more than he hates men? Because the curse over the devil was, women will eternally hate you women teach the world to hate the devil. (laughs) Such a good word. Men are like, I hate the devil. Yeah. Your mama taught you that. (laughs) Okay. Matthew chapter five, verse 14. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard this before. I've heard it so many times. People say, in the last days, in the last days, the church is gonna get brighter and brighter, and the world's gonna get darker and darker. Hopefully, nobody in here has preached that. That's kind of funny because Jesus said, you're the light of the world. Isn't it funny? He didn't say you're the light of the church. He didn't say you're the light of the church. Listen, if Jesus said you're the light of the church, then the theology would be right. In the last days, the church will get brighter and brighter and the world will get darker and darker. But Jesus said you're the light of the world. And then he goes on to say, "Um, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but puts it on a lampstand so that it gives light to everyone in the house. Now the only way it can get brighter in this room in one place and darker simultaneously in the same room, is if we take a light and we cover it. Are you with me? We put a basket over it, then it could get brighter under the basket, and still darker in the room. But Jesus said, no one takes a light and puts it under a basket, but sets it on a lampstand. And then he said, you're a city set on a hill. It's the same metaphor. In other words, Jesus is saying, you're the light of the world. And how? where is your position in the world? I want to set you at the top of the mountain so that everyone can see. Okay. Help me know it's not so you'll see the light. It's so you'll see. When I turn the lights on, I don't stare at the light. I see the light. No, I see you. I can see where there's light. I can understand where there's light. I can understand the nature of God where there's light. Are you with me? Yes. But I, what I'm getting at is that for some reason, we have this idea that the, the last days, things are supposed to get worse. And yet Jesus said the, bright, the light's gonna get brighter and brighter till the perfect day. And he said, you're the light of the world. Yes. See, part of the challenge is, is that we think that the church, we, see, let, let me say it this way. Jesus said, I'll build the church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And then 127 times, he said, in different ways, he said, you extend the kingdom. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, and say what? The kingdom has come near you. Acts chapter 16, they went everywhere preaching the kingdom of God. See, part of the challenge is we think the church is the kingdom. And I'd propose that all of the church is in the kingdom, but not all the kingdoms in the church See, isn't it funny that we spend all of our time building the church and wondering why the world's going to hell? And then we create theologies and eschatologies to make it okay. Well, the world's just getting darker and darker. Isn't that funny? If the world's getting darker and darker, whose fault is that if you're the light of the world? Well, the devil's just getting stronger and stronger. The devil's getting stronger and stronger. Isn't that funny? All authority's been given to us (laughs) And we're complaining about how dark the world's getting. Something's wrong. Tell me what's going on with this theology. Well, the devil's gonna come, he's gonna put in the mark of the beast. He ain't gonna put the mark of the beast on me. I already have a mark. I'm a child of the king. I'm a son of God. Listen, if the devil can't stop you, what's he have to do? He has to figure out some way to deceive you. Because he has no authority. You have all authority. He has a little power. Remember, Jesus said, I'm going to give you power over all the power of the devil. So the word for um, authority is a word something like exousia. Uh, it's what a police officer has when he has a badge. He has exousia. He has, he has authority. But the word power is the word deutimus. It, we get our word dynamite from it. It's the gun. How many of you know the devil has power? You have more power. And he has no exousia. He has no authority. You have authority. You have a badge. And you have power. You have a gun. Or if you live in in England, you have a a stick. I'm saying the only reason you think you're powerless is because you think you are. Because Jesus gave you power over all the power of the enemy, and he gave you authority, and the devil has no authority. Can you imagine being a devil, and you have no authority? Like, you're a bad guy, and there's nothing you can do about people beating you up. I'm just going to leave you down there. For all the people you tormented and see what they, it's like, oh, I don't want to say it. Anyway, there are certain kind of people that you throw in prison and even the prisoners hate them. You should hate the devil. Okay. (laughs) You guys are so weird. That's why I like you. Matthew 5.14, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill. No, you're a light of the world, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Oh, I read that to you. Sorry, okay, just cool. <laughs> verse The next verse, verse 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Now isn't it interesting that Jesus takes the metaphor of light, you're the light of the world, and then he goes, Okay, what's actually light? Works. You're the light of the world, a city on a hill that can't be hidden. The next verse. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they see your good works and they glorify your Father who's in heaven. How many understand that good works are the practical aspects of light? Good works. Are, are you following me? Michelangelo said, I saw the angel in the stone and I carved to set it free. You know, there's a lot of people that think, if I got a different job, I would be happy. When I get an education, I'll be happy. When I, when I get married, I'll be happy. When we have children, when I get out of this marriage, like something's, <laughs> sorry, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> people think my problem is my circumstances, and I'd say your problem is you can't see. You know the difference between chipping rock and freeing angels? What you think is in the stone. One guy is working at Burger King flipping burgers. Another guy's right next to him flipping burgers. And one person thinks, I'm gonna learn this really well. Someday I'm gonna have my own franchise. And the other guy thinks, you know what? I just, I hate flipping burgers. How many of you know they're both doing the same thing? One is building a great franchise and the other is wasting eight hours a day. It's not what you do; it's what you think you're doing that matters. I'm telling you, for some people, life—some people wait their whole life for life to start. Well, there's four thousand reasons why tomorrow I'm going to really live. And I propose to you that the journey is more important than the destiny. You know the first prophetic word that Abraham and Sarah had wasn't where they were going. God said, lead the Chaldeans to what? A place I will show you. Do you know what their prophetic word was? Not where they were going, where they couldn't stay. I'm saying, sometimes God's a lamp to our feet and sometimes he's a light to our path. I personally like the light to our path season, but sometimes God goes, I'm just gonna show you the next step. God, where am I going? Listen, right now we're not talking about where you're going, Mr. Valatin. We're talking about who you're with. I'm not going to teach, I'm not going to tell you where you're going until you get really confident in who you're with. Sometimes God blindfolds us so we don't know where we're going, so we'll get confident in who's leading us. Are you with me? We're the light of the world. A city on a hill that can't be hidden. I was in, it's real interesting in what um, I think um, Stacy was saying earlier this morning. She was talking about I think it was this morning or last night but in one of her sessions, she was talking about, do large churches mean better cities? And in the Heavy Rain Book, we actually did a statistical study on American cities. And here's what we found, very similar to what she was talking about. What we found, we did the research ourselves, and what we found is that the cities that had the greatest Christian church-going population had the worst social statistics in our nation. In other words, the larger, the more people that went to a Christian church in a given city, the worst off the city was. Most pastors would never believe that unless they actually saw the statistics. What I'm getting at is most megachurch pastors think, my city is better off because of my church, and I propose that the people in your church are better off because of your church, but your city is actually worse off because of your church. I call it in the Heavy Rain book, I call it the huddle effect. What happens is you get all the Christians together, you get them together so often, they all huddle together, the church becomes a basket, It's really bright, the church, and the world goes to hell, and then we create theologies and eschatology to make it okay for the world to go to hell. Crime increases. Divorce rates climb. Poverty index rises. Unemployment rate goes up. Drug use increases. School dropout rates increase as churches get bigger. Like you said, we're the light of the world. Yeah, I said, we're We're supposed to be the light of the world, and when we focus inwardly, and all we do is reproduce Christians instead of disciples. See, the challenge is, the the way we measure success is how many butts we put in a seat on a Sunday morning in two hours. go, well, we must be doing something good, because last year we had 800, and this year we have 1,000. So therefore... We're doing more for the kingdom. You may be doing more for the church, but I'm not sure you're doing more for the kingdom. And then we think the only thing we're supposed to do is lead people to Christ. And I'm like, it's great to lead people to Christ because it's eternal. But Jesus said, do your good works in such a way. And then he went on to say that if you give a cup of water to someone in my name, then you've done it unto me. <laughs> okay. I'd like to propose that an apostolic, an apostolic people measures their success not by how many butts they put in a seat, but how, but how transformed the culture is. Yes. Years ago, I was preaching this very message. I was preaching that this Bethel church is an apostolic church. That was, the, that was my message. Bethel, you are an apostolic church. I was preaching on a Sunday morning. At that time, we had two services. And on the way to work, uh, we used to take the newspaper. I just have it on my phone now. But I would pick up the newspaper. I picked up the newspaper in the morning, the Sunday morning paper, and I threw it in the front seat. It was rolled up. It was a Sunday morning paper. It was thick. And as I threw it in the front seat, the rubber band popped off of it and it opened up. And the front page, as I was driving, I looked over, and the front page said, Redding, California, one of the worst cities in America to live in. Remember, I was preaching Redding, California. Bethel is an apostolic church and apostolic churches transform culture. 15 years ago I'm going to preach apostolic people transform culture and I look and at the time we had 6000 people in our church and about 1500 people in our school and I'm going I'm going to preach on Bethel's an apostolic church and the paper says we're not. So I took that that um that article I cut it out. It was the front page. It was about that big. And it took about four or five minutes to read it. And I read the entire article. And the article listed the 10 indicators of of a healthy city, the 10 measurements of how governments measure a healthy city, the wholeness uh, indicator. And I read the entire article, which said, "Reading California, for a city uh, uh, of 100,000 or less, we were were 89,000, For a city of 100,000 or less, we are on the bottom 2% in the whole nation of cities to live in. And I read this article to them with, with the 10 indicators, and I asked the question, is this our problem, or the fact that it's not our problem, the problem? And then I went on to teach that we are an apostolic people and that it's our mission to transform our city and I said at the time, if six thousand people in our church plus the rest of our community, which we have wonderful churches in our community, I, my guess is that in ninety thousand people, eighty-nine thousand people, my guess is twenty-five to thirty thousand people would go would be church-going Christians in our city. We have a high percentage. We have very strong churches here. We have several other churches that are a thousand or more. And I said, if Reading, if This 20,000, 30,000 people can't transform a city of 90,000. We are in deep trouble. And then I I said, then I came to the senior leadership team that Tuesday. I read the article to our senior leadership team, and I asked the same question. Is this our problem, or the fact that it's not our problem, the problem? And we kind of stared at each other. And somebody somebody said, well, what, what do you think we should do? well we're we're not proactively going after these indicators we're just thinking if we get enough christians in the city they'll transform the world but we haven't actually told people how to transform the world what i'm getting at is we haven't activated our we we trained and equipped but not with deployment in mind what would happen if we took the gifts like the word of knowledge the prophecy you know, uh, we, we, you know, we just take all these things we're teaching our people and we say, these things are gifts to help our city. Yeah. Now here's the 10 wholeness indicators that need help. Go help our city. Yes. And out of that Sunday, and I've told this story many times, uh, I can see some of you've already heard this message several times. <laughs> I get it. Um, out, of that, out of that season, And in that senior leadership meeting, our senior leaders decided that we would tithe to our city. We said, well, you know what? Let's start with generosity. Generosity, it isn't the little bit of money we're given. It's the idea that we're being generous towards the people we're trying to help. So we immediately met with our city manager. We said, hey, we'd like to, we didn't say tithe, we'd like to give 10%. I said, Bill said, we give away 10% of our income. We'd like to take 10% of that, 10%, and we'd like to give it to the city. And immediately our city manager said, uh, where do you want to put it? And we said, well, in the Old test I'm sorry, in the Bible, in the New Testament, they took their money and they laid it at their leader's feet. And they let the leaders distribute it. distribute it." And we said, we, won't, we don't just want to be generous, we want to learn to trust. We want to build a relationship with the city fathers. So we want to give it to you, and the only thing we ask is that we can meet with you once a year, and you can tell us what needs you have. And also that if you have other needs throughout the year, that we could take offerings in some of our conferences and help meet those needs. So we started doing that. We have always put students in the streets praying for the sick, um, you know, and and just praying for people. And I'm like, what if we took our students, now we have 2,500 of them, what if we took our students and we had a city day and we developed teams that actually helped our city. And we sat with our city leaders and we said, where do you need help? And we become the labor force for the city. Now, um, that didn't go so well when we first started for numerous reasons. Like we show up at a park, there'd be 60 students and there'd be two rakes. And there'd be like, you know, 58 people praying And so we, you know, it took us two years to figure that out. And we, yeah, we're not not the sharpest knife in the drawer. You're like, I would have figured that out in two weeks. I'm like, I know. And we hired a a guy named Keith Elroyd who'd worked for me years ago. Um, uh, He worked in the, in the whole force uh, industry and he began to develop our city strategy and it took a little time, but eventually he got to meet with our city manager and he built a relationship with our city fathers and our city mothers, and pretty soon they really loved Keith, and they would spend the summer, we would spend the summer lining out all the jobs, and then we ended up with city leaders, I mean, I'm sorry, um, city, what do we call it, city um, projects, leaders, and we ended up with this, we bought almost a million dollars worth of equipment, and we have trucks and tractors and chainsaws, and you have to be certified in each thing, so the student has to actually be certified in chainsaw use and have to be certified in pruning, and we just like, what if we did this with excellence? What if we, did, what if we trimmed trees and prune trees in a way that Solomon's waiters waited on tables? And we started doing that um, last year, I think a year and a half ago, we found out that they were laying off, we have 92 police officers in our community, and there's only four police officers that prevent crime, and they were laying off those four police officers because they were hired on a grant, and the grant ran out, and they didn't get to renew the grant. And so we were like, hey, we can't let these four police officers go because they're the only police officers that actually prevent crime. Otherwise, we're just reacting to crime. And we said, what can we do? So we called the city manager, and they said, well, it's gonna cost 1.2 million for two years. We said, well, let's fund them for two years. Let's figure, that'll buy us two more years, That'll give us a chance for the city to recover. And so we raised the money. We gave $500,000 out of our building project, um, money that we had put in there, not money that other people had given. And we ended up raising $1.2 million, and we, and we, we funded them. Uh, this is it's coming up on the second year, uh, a few more months. The city was just uh, informed us that they have been able to take over their wage, so they get to keep the four police officers. Um, I met with the uh, chief of police, a really godly guy, Um, and uh, his name's uh, Police Chief Moore. I sat with Police Chief Moore and I said, you know, what else can we do? And he said, well, you guys want to do more? And we're like, yes, we do. And he said, well, we need drones. We don't have any money for drones, but what happens is we're in pursuit of a, of a, uh, a dangerous suspect. They jump over a fence. My officers have to jump over that fence not knowing if the guy's there with a gun or a knife. So what we like to do is fly the drones over before our officers jump the fence so that we, you know, save lives. And so, um, so we, we bought three drones. We paid for all the training for, for those guys. Now, during the fire, we turned this place into a distribution center. The Salvation Army came. Um, they said they'd never seen a distribution center like this in their history, we put thousands of workers, our church people, and our in our and our city, um, we put them to work, just working around the clock, making sure people had the basic necessities. We, I text forty of our friends who were leaders uh, around the world, and I said, "We, we need help." Um, We have 1,100 people that lost their homes. We really love to give everyone $1,000 just to get the bare essentials. We had people that needed underwear and socks and just the bare essentials, you can imagine. And uh, and, and in in four days, we raised $1.7 million. And we were able to give most of the uh, people $2,000. And and, and then we, we, we developed teams global response teams, and we sent them out into the neighborhoods that were burnt so they could sift through. We did this sifting. You had to be in a hazmat suit. You had to have training. And so we, had, we, we put on a training. We already had about 50 of our people trained. We ended up training like 500 people. They went out with sifts to find really valuable things that people had lost in a fire. You'd be surprised what it, how little things really help people find closure. They found wedding rings, they found jewelry that meant stuff to people, and we got to pray with people who didn't even know the Lord, and uh, just really wonderful stuff going on. And now we just bought $600,000 worth of equipment so that we could take all those black trees that usually stay standing forever, and that nobody has money to cut down, we'll, we're going to send a thousand students into, the, into those forests, and we got chippers and tractors, and we're going to turn this into a beautiful place. And I'll finish with this. When uh, the children of Israel were in Babylon for those 70 years, God said, I want you to pray for Babylon. Because in their prosperity is your prosperity. I I really want to challenge you. I I love what Stacy was, was talking about earlier. Just about the fact that what would happen if you left here as an apostolic person. Not just as a prophetic person. But what if you took your prophetic gift and the anointing that you that you received both here and all over the place you've been going? What if your city benefited from you being in this conference? What if you didn't just go to a conference? What if you actually got equipped to heal your city? You go, well, my city's got 10 million people in it. Yeah, but it also has you. I mean, Martin Luther King was one guy, but he shifted history. Now, you know, it, 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 Crowds don't change history. People do. Would you stand? I wanna pray for you. Lord, I just thank you for what you're doing with all these people. And I pray, God, that you would give us an apostolic heart. Now, we wouldn't be people who run around with titles, but we would be a people who transform our city. And God, I pray that our city would be thankful that we are there. We would not be the people who go monthly to the city council meetings and complain about what they're not doing for us. But we'd be the people who go into city council meetings with servants' hearts and with the mind of Christ and say, we've come here to help our city be healthy. How can we help our city? Give us the wisdom and the favor to connect to our city leaders so that we are servants of the city and not masters of our council people. Give us wisdom, God, as we move forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening to my podcast. If you want to find out more, read my blog, or listen to the previous podcast episodes. Go to chrisvellton.com. Have an awesome day.